0: Hello, and welcome back to Party Prey. This episode, we are joined by Lincoln Chafee. Chafee's storied political career is going to help us better understand partisanship in America, specifically through party dynamics and a few key issues that Americans have been concerned about for decades. After graduating from Brown University, Chafee became mayor of Warwick, Rhode Island. The state in which most of his political career occurred after that he stepped up to becoming a united states senator from the same state and finally became the 74th governor of rhode island one thing that sets governor chafee's career apart from most politicians in this country is his political party affiliations and yes that's plural for a reason before 2007 when he was serving as mayor of warwick and as a united states senator governor chafee was a republican After that, from 07 to 2013, he was registered independent. 2013 to 2019, he was a member of the Democratic Party, and you might know him best from that time, as in 2016, he actually ran for the presidency in the Democratic primary in a crowded field with names such as Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. Uh, Since 2019, however, he's been a member of the Libertarian Party, for which he actually considered another presidential run in 2020. Unsurprisingly, throughout his career, Governor Chafee has been known for breaking party lines, voting his conscience, both things Americans have been begging for as the supposed solution to partisanship in this country. So without further ado, let's ask the man already doing it, what he thinks about partisanship. Uh, so my first question for you is fairly open-ended, and it, it focuses on on that idea of partisanship. And it's just that. What, what is your reaction to partisanship? Is, is that something that you have like an inherently negative or positive connotation with? Well, partisanship can
1: be healthy. Uh, if, uh, if the two parties, uh, uh, the dynamics of uh, representing different points of view, uh, that, that can be good. But I think it's gotten so that Uh, the Republicans all voting together and the Democrats all voting together all the time uh, without any cross-pollinization. That's been really the big change. Uh, When I was in the Senate, it was getting more and more divided. It started off with uh, maybe 20 Republicans that would vote with Democrats, maybe 20 Democrats would vote with uh, Republicans. And by the time I left, uh, they, if you had done that, you would be defeated. And so uh, there were just really four of us Jim Jeffords from Vermont, myself, uh, Ben Nelson, a Democrat from uh, Nebraska, John Bro, a Democrat from Louisiana. You won't find Democrats from Nebraska and Louisiana anymore. And you won't find Republicans from Rhode Island or Vermont, where Jeffords was from. And the, so that's, that's been the big change. The partisanship has, has, has not become healthy. Uh, in recent years. It's just, there's just not enough uh, debate between the parties to to come to a good consensus on behalf of the best interests of the country, in my opinion.
0: So, given your answer there and how the Democrats and Republicans interact, especially in the House and Senate now, uh, do you think there's room for the Libertarian Party to sort of step in as a middle ground and maybe those people back in you know, late 90s, early 2000s, who even then were sort of far and few between, but sort of standing in the middle. Do you think that there's room for that? And, and would you even consider the Libertarian Party as sort of representing that middle ground? Or how would you describe that?
1: Well, I can be optimistic and hope that that's true. And that's why I joined the Libertarian Party. I did put my toe in the water in 2020 to represent the party uh, in in the presidential election. I went to many, many libertarian state conventions around the country, uh, maybe 16, 17, 18 different state conventions meeting the delegates there. And unfortunately, Josh, what I found is I, I do believe the two party system will do anything to stop the third party from getting traction. And I do think they even infiltrate and fund candidates uh, I'm, I'm not a big conspiracy guy, but it was—it was just my experience and going to these state conventions. Uh, there was a fellow that has been around the party for a long time named Vermin Supreme, and he puts on kind of a performance, and he, he gets big applause. And he and he, he attends all the conventions. And we have serious issues facing this country. And God bless them It's America, and you can do what you want, but. Uh, I want to talk about the deficit and about whether what we're doing in the Middle East is the right course of action, uh, rights for, uh, for Americans, uh, Fourth Amendment rights that are being trampled on, in my opinion. Uh, these are big, important issues. And I, I, I found that the libertarians sometimes get off on, on frankly, kooky stuff. And I, I call myself a practical libertarian. And so we'll see. I can always be optimistic.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. That's something that's always struck me is you have, like, watching libertarian debates, and you've got candidates like Joe Jorgensen or Gary Johnson back in 2016, sharing the stage with Mr. Supreme and and some of those people who, like, it it makes sense that with the libertarian party being sort of the third party, even though the idea of a third party gaining traction is difficult, uh, probably appeals to a lot of people that have frustrations, and those frustrations can be entirely unrelated from each other. So I absolutely resonate with with those ideas. Touching back on that idea that you mentioned, how the two parties sort of want to stay established as the two parties, which makes sense, of course, specifically in 2020, but I guess you hear it every cycle, the idea of like a spoiler candidate and the libertarian party sort of being villainized, taking away votes from one of the other two parties, like uh, the margin of votes with Joe Jorgensen in 2020, Gary Johnson in 2016. I think Democrats were complaining that Johnson pulled away from Clinton in 2016 and Republicans in 2020. Do you think that that spoiler candidate moniker could ever go away? Uh, And what's sort of your first retort when you hear that? Uh, If you were to have continued your run in 2020, how would you have answered a question of, aren't you just spoiling the other two people? Why don't you get behind one of them?
1: That's a legit uh, criticism of the third party, Uh, but it is America and and people have their choices. And if you consider it a a spoiler candidate, just don't vote for them. And certainly Ralph Nader uh, gave the 2000 election to George W. Bush and we live with the consequences uh, of that. But I think this is America and different ideas from my two big issues of the deficits and and are, intervention around the world, uh, not in our best interest, certainly the Iraq war being the big one. And both parties are guilty of driving up this deficit. The, the Democrats now are passing this enormous uh, COVID relief bill. For one, These numbers are just staggering. Even from my experience of having served in Washington, these kind of numbers, 1.9 trillion. It, and we pay interest on the debt, a gigantic amount of you and our taxpayer dollars are going just to the interest that go, doesn't go for anything good. There's interest on this enormous debt and both parties are guilty. And I think both parties are guilty of most Democrats voted for the Iraq war, more Democrats voted for it than against it. And of course, every Republican except me uh, voted for it. Uh, so these are two big issues as well as uh, our constitutional rights this is the, uh, really the third issue that I care about, especially uh, fourth amendment and what Snowden uh, pointed out that our federal government was doing to our citizens, he was right. And both political parties are not talking about Snowden's right. There's a Fourth Amendment. You need a warrant. If you're going to tap our phones, you have to get a warrant. It's very clear in the Fourth Amendment of our precious Constitution. So I think there's still room for a third party in these kinds of debates.
0: So some of Governor Chafee's frustrations... And motivations are becoming quite apparent as to why he would join a third party, uh, even though third parties in this country have not seen success nationally for years. But that raises a very valid question as to whether or not a third party needs success nationally to actually make an influence on politics at large in this country, and maybe start to close that gap of partisanship and polarization in the country. But if you're not seeing success nationally, where do you see it? Well, potentially at the state level.
1: I'm going to stay active in the Wyoming Libertarian Party. Uh, they did elect the party did elect a state representative here in Wyoming. So that's a foothold. That's uh, that success that has not happened elsewhere around the country. Actually, a member of the state legislature uh, for the Libertarian Party. So that's a good start. Let's talk about these issues that I just talked about. Uh, that's what I want to do.
0: Do Do you think that if a third party is going to gain traction, it's probably going to happen at sort of that local and state level. And what what would the effect of that be? Do you think that ever climb up? Or is that in of itself, serious progress in your mind?
1: Well, I think the phenomenon of Donald Trump uh, adds a whole nother factor to, uh, and he he said, I'm not going to be part of a third party at the recent convention he was at the conservative convention he says i'm staying a republican he made that very clear but there's still a lot of volatility in in politics right now abraham lincoln was uh, the republican party was formed in what 1854 and he was elected president in 1850 1860 six years later it can't happen fast uh and slavery of course was the big issue it was a big issue that they needed a voice and that party stepped forward and was that voice the republican Party. Uh, So with the Trump volatility to the parties, a different dynamic could take place where all of a sudden uh, with the right message, uh, a third party could take off. I do believe, as I said earlier, the other two parties will do everything to stop that from happening. And that's just going to be a factor. Definitely. And they have a lot of money. Those two parties have a lot of money.
0: So this is sort of going down that tangent a bit, but uh, given how much you stood for like environmental issues, even when you were serving as a Republican, when that wasn't necessarily the popular stance in the party Uh, and the idea back when the Republican party was originally founded uh, with that sole issue, that that primary issue of slavery. Do you think that if we were ever to see another one of those party shifts that we've seen throughout the last few centuries of our countries, uh, it might be one of those big issues such as climate that could be a catalyst into another party sort of swooping in, or at least a major shift in opinion? I'm not sure climate would be the
1: issue, Josh. Uh, I, I think the deficits, both parties are so guilty of this uh, deficit. And if the economy crashes, it's always pocketbook issues. And, and, and if you can point to the the reason the market crashes is we just could not afford this, the interest on this debt that we've run out. Both parties being guilty of it. Uh, I came up through the Vietnam War and then we got into uh, Iraq and the, the cost, six trillion dollars, whatever it cost us in Iraq, never mind the veteran issues that are continuing to uh, uh, legitimately should have our attention. Why did we do that? Why did we go into Iraq? That still cannot be answered by the advocates. Uh, and so what it might be a war uh, if if Biden goes into Syria or into Attacks Iran or Venezuela or somewhere that could be a catalyst for uh, a third party with a strong voice in opposition to that course of action. I don't think that the the civil liberties. When I talk about Edward Snowden, nobody seems to be is on my side saying he should be come home and be given a parade. Uh, So I I don't think that for some reason Americans still have the fear of terrorism and, and and security, even though. The Ben Franklin quote is, if you sacrifice your liberties for security, you'll have neither uh, is uh, very true. But I think it could be the deficits and the crashing of the economy or or getting into some war and having that as a Vietnam War became a huge issue, uh, opposition to it uh, later in the 60s and early 70s.
0: That idea of civil liberties, specifically Snowden and everything that's happened, I guess, the last two decades there since 9-11. I guess Governor at the time, Chris Christie. I, th- I think he said, you, "You can't enjoy your civil liberties if you're in a coffin." Do you buy into that idea? Where Where do you think the balance is of government's intervention, uh, especially with the threat of terrorism, but also you know, your Fourth Amendment rights and and all the other rights that you should be entitled to? How How do you find that balance? And also, sort of backing up off of that with like the Patriot Act and then the Freedom Act following up that. That stood out to me as, as some of the pieces of legislation that have actually had bipartisan support, which surprised me, given how contentious I figured that issue would be. So yes, I'll, I'll just let you expand a bit on that and how partisanship plays into that specific issue. Uh,
1: yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'd say to Governor Christie, uh, Patrick Henry, what he said, give me liberty or give me death. And, and I'd rather be in a coffin than lose my liberties. Uh, and and that's what we fought for, all these, uh, that's what makes America great, that's what makes us different. Uh, Freedom of speech, uh, all the the rights we have, uh, the Bill of Rights, all given to us by our our forefathers. So uh, I I just, uh, I I think that the the Patriot Act was passed when I was in the Senate, Uh, yes, 9-11 did just happen, and how it was sold to us, was that we're just updating the the, the present laws really address landlines, cell phones are now more in in use. And we've got to update these laws to address the change in technology. And it's really not going to be anything that will trample on the Fourth Amendment that says you still have to get that warrant before you come into our uh, houses, papers, or effects as the the Fourth Amendment says. I think it was only one vote against it, 99 to one or, 98 to one, one not making the vote. And many civil libertarians, such as Pat Leahy from Vermont voting for it. And I wasn't on the committee that saw the debate when you're not on the committee, you kind of look to champions of civil liberties, in this case, the champions of the the issues that you care about and see how they vote. And when I saw Pat Leahy and Ted Kennedy all voting for it, I said, okay, it's gotta be okay. And I think many others did the same thing. And it ended up, uh, I think that, the administration, uh, Dick Cheney and his boys, start to change the Patriot Act. What it was really intended to do, in my opinion, the constitutional Fourth Amendment—that can be amended if you, if the Americans want to amend it and take away the request for uh, the, the requirement of a warrant. Well, let's have that debate. But let's not go, let our government spy on us without warrants
0: until we change that Fourth Amendment. Having seen the inner workings of our government day to day. How common is it that those rights are pushed or, or not prioritized? Do people in power sort of necessarily try and use that power even if they shouldn't be? Or what is your overarching experience been there?
1: Well, I thought we were doing pretty well as a country uh, in, until 9-11. And when the, I was in Washington, when it happened and uh, the, the Pentagon was straight down Constitution Avenue from where our offices were, and, and so you can see the smoke coming. Uh, I honestly thought, oh, no, oh, no, here comes an event in our history that's going to jeopardize some of our freedoms. I had that feeling right away. And uh, the administration was, and the media were so successful at dialing up the fear and anger, two very strong emotions after 9-11. Fear and anger, and they got us into the Iraq war, and it and, and got us many Americans in favor of uh, giving up our personal liberties, our constitutional liberties, uh, in favor of security. Uh, I hear it all the time when I bring it up at different gatherings about Snowden. Oh, no, no, I'd rather have security. I, uh, you, you're not an American. <laughs> Change the constitution then. Let's have a debate about changing the constitution. But until then, uh, all Americans for standing up for those sacred words.
0: That actually leads into, as the next two pieces I'd like to talk about, and they might be intertwined to some extent, but uh, the first is the Iraq war. You know, when when you declared your run for president in 2016, that was one of your most vocal criticisms of candidate Clinton. And even at age 12, that that's the one thing I remember is Iraq war, Iraq war. It's a decision that our politicians have to make the same as any other, but my thought process has always been, okay, I understand the the need to vote along party lines, ensure that your re-election bit is solid and and all of those external pressures that influence a vote. But with something like war, where there is a direct loss of life or direct impacts that you can you can see on the news the next day that people would be more likely to break and vote independently of those other pressures when, when it really matters. Is that something you've seen happen, or am I being overly optimistic?
1: Well, I was just shocked how uh, this ball got rolling uh, for weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. There really was never any, any evidence of it. The media got behind it, and it just got to be Colin Powell, even Condoleezza Rice, everybody in favor of this. George Tennant, the director of the CIA, all in favor of this. And uh, I, I agree with you, a, a vote for war, I'd, I'd rather walk out of the chamber and lose uh, than send Americans into combat without a good reason. And there never really was a reason. I have been to Walter Reed Hospital. I've seen the, the young men and women without arms and legs and, and, and the, the, the cost of it. And on top of that, the loss of our credibility. We, we went in front of the whole world United Nations and said Saddam Hussein Hussein has weapons of mass destruction. He didn't have a barely have a tank or a helicopter. That's American credibility that I care about. Also, I tried to bring it up in the 2016 election. Bernie Sanders kind of took more of uh, the wind. I thought there was room for someone to criticize Secretary Clinton on the issue, and and Bernie Sanders kind of took more of that uh, and got more of the momentum. So God bless him
0: and that's specifically the next idea I want to bring up my my first introduction to you was that debate in 2015 October I think I was 12 but I was upset <laughs> for anyone unfamiliar with the presidential debate structure of today or unfamiliar with this specific debate uh, it's predatory and it's set up more so for sound bites and media attention than substantive debate. Which is hard on the candidates. Including our Governor Chafee, who, after the first Democratic primary debate back in 2016, promptly was out of the race just a couple weeks after. He was given significantly less time to speak than fellow candidates Clinton and Sanders. The questions he was asked were tough. And didn't allow him the opportunity to speak to the issues he wanted to speak to. I I think your frustration was visual during that debate. Um, in the back and forth with Anderson Cooper and and all that was happening there. So uh, what are your thoughts on the debate structure? How our candidates are portrayed?
1: Well, everything you said is accurate. The the moderators have too much power and there are only five of us on the stage. This is a race for president of the United States. It's only five. It's not 16 or 18 on the stage. Uh, O'Malley, Webb, Chafee, Sanders, and Clinton. Only five. And I got eight minutes They gave me eight minutes out of two hours. Uh, Webb got 12 minutes. This isn't right. O'Malley got 20, and Clinton and Sanders got uh, the majority of the rest. But eight minutes, and every time I tried to make a point, the moderator was badgering me, and I've gone and watched the the tape of it and tried to analyze what happened. Uh, It's very difficult in a debate, and I came up through City council, mayor, and each one is very, very intense and and a lot of pressure. And uh, you're on TV or uh, facing the electorate, and many people are watching, they're going to make a decision based on this debate. You need to get into a flow. And when you stand there for 20 minutes at a time without getting a question uh, addressed to you, as the moderator, Anderson Cooper, refused to do, and he said, raise your hand if you want to answer the question. Of course I'm raising my hand. I want to get into the flow and get a feel for the uh, for this high pressure event I'm in. And it just didn't happen. Uh, so the, the moderators not only badgering me and, 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 and uh, talking over me when I'm trying to answer, but giving me so little time was quite an experience of... Uh, how much power uh, uh, the, the, the media has in how uh, Americans are going to cast their vote. And so I learned a lot from it. And I suppose I could say shame on me. I should have said I, I didn't come here to debate six people, four uh, five people. I came to debate four. And I don't want to be debating you. you. Give me a chance to answer. I could have been you know, more experienced at, at handling what happened there. Uh, but it was, it was not what I expected. That, and not good for the American people in my view. And, and I think there's been just criticism uh, level that how they apportion the time and watching this recent democratic field. I, I served with the governor of Washington uh, and also the governor of Colorado Loop. So I, I was kind of rooting for the, for them. And they didn't get any time. <laughs> Inslee, Inslee, Jay Inslee from Washington and Loop are the, What? These are experienced people. They've run. uh, Inslee's been a congressman and a governor. Uh, Hickenlooper's been a mayor of Denver and a governor. These these are the type of people you want as president. Uh, And and it just didn't
0: happen. Absolutely. I I have a soft spot for Inslee. I I was born in Seattle. I've got the sort of hometown of Washington pride. And yeah, I I, I remember watching the 2020 debates and Inslee's sort of being known for his climate advocacy. I, I felt got typecasted into just that and they asked him the questions about climate and he got his minute to talk and that felt like all we heard of him and then Higgins, yes. the yes. fact that i can't remember a single one of his advocacies a single one of his responses that's i think indicative of the system we have and you know yeah
1: typecast they typecast him, and they have a narrative trump i don't agree with very much what trump says but the power of the media <laughs> and how they can twist things
0: Absolutely.
1: There's a good example of what happened to Jay Hensley and what happened to me in twenty in October
0: 2015. So with that in mind, I, I think it's clear that the media has too much power in in how this is said, but do you feel that that structure is fixable? What would your ideal debate stage look like for our candidates moving forward? Well, one thing
1: that, and again, I'll, I'll, uh, stress that Donald Trump, I disagree with 99.9 of what he stands for, but what he did bring is a voice for these uh, disenfranchised Americans. And despite all the everything against Donald Trump, he still won the primaries and became the nominee and then won the election despite the media. Uh, And he was so skillful at at, uh, text, uh, tweeting and all that going around uh, the media uh, so you learn things from what, how this happens. Uh, he, he did get elected president of the United States, uh, despite having uh, all the establishment against him. We're going through a very interesting time in American history right now. Uh, the whole Trump phenomenon, disenfranchised. What did you get? 77 million votes in, in 2020. Uh, more than any other president's ever gotten, just uh, Biden got more. So we'll I think the Americans are just looking for... Uh, they're not trustful, especially young people, and not trustful of established entities, whether it's the two parties or whether it's Wall Street or uh, even Major League Baseball with the steroids and all our institutions are, are under scrutiny as, as they should be.
0: So bringing up. Former President Trump, of course, exceptionally relevant to American politics now. And well, I'll ask you this first. Do you think the perception that many Americans have and, and one of the reasons for such low approval ratings for the House and Senate, just blanket terms, the idea that things don't get done, do you think that's a fair assessment? And do you think that's a reason that Trump popped up is we've lost faith as, as a country and our politicians to do something? Well, they all get
1: reelected so you, you have low approval ratings but then <laughs> they all get reelected uh but i do think something new is happening uh, the trump phenomenon and the, the, the disenfranchised americans and how, how they express uh their frustration with the establishment uh still remains to be seen how this is going to sort out here in wyoming liz cheney voted for impeachment she's gambling uh on the establishment's going to win out. Uh, and so that, that was an interesting vote. I fell off my chair when I read it. In, in Wyoming, where Donald Trump got the highest percent of any state, she's voting for impeachment. And, but she's making a gamble that the, the party's gonna come away from this populist uh, disenfranchised uh, I don't, maybe anger or uh, frustration with the establishment. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure that's true.
0: Since the time of this interview, however, that gamble that Governor Chafee brings up that Representative Liz Cheney took on, while it's come to fruition, and many would say the dice were not in her favor, uh, Representative Cheney lost her post in House leadership uh, and is being replaced by New York Representative Elise Stefanik, who has been a very, very solid Trump defender Despite Cheney's consistent conservative voting record, uh, her name recognition with her father's previous post as vice president, it looks like the party is actually rallying behind these ideas. But with that in mind, let's hear Governor Chafee's thoughts on that impeachment vote that has put Representative Cheney in the position she's in now.
1: I think the issue was uh, what are the charges against him? I mean, as I said, I disagree with ninety nine point nine of what he stands for. I like some, some to have the someone to have their their rights and what what was he guilty of in this particular instance? And yes, there, there was a riot, but now we're finding out that the guard, whoever was supposed to be there, they waited six hours and they're pleading, please send them. Somebody did not want the protection to be there. We all knew the day was coming. I had friends there in Washington saying they're boarding up stores and things like that. We all they all knew, and and yet it still happens. So you know, in a way. Uh, it's almost like 9/11 they, that gives you an, an, uh, a, a, an excuse to, uh, to do other things, have impeachment and hopefully prevent Donald Trump from ever running for office again or whatever the uh, the goal was. But I, I didn't think the charges were legitimate in this case. His role and what happened at the Capitol I, I, that, that's debatable.
0: Given those things that the jerk response is they, they should at least be debatable but, it sometimes feels like the parties have already decided given you end up voting mostly along party lines and we were surprised that regardless of whether or not you agree with Liz Cheney's decision that that she broke from the party that in and of itself was so surprising and I assume indicative of we're just so used to sort of that party mind instead of each individual voter and and that, that's part of why I specifically wanted to speak with you, given your time in the Senate, especially serving as a Republican, but having voting records center, even center left over certain periods. How'd that go? <laughs> like, uh, sort of, I don't know how prevalent the term was then, but at least now that sort of rhino Republican and name only idea, I, I imagine there must have been significant pressure from your fellow senators in the Republican Party, uh, were they upset when you weren't voting with the other 49, 48, 47, however many Republicans were in the Senate at a given point? How did that go? How were you able to justify your decisions? Well, in the end, there
1: is a practicality. When I was running for re-election, the margin of the Senate was in play. The Democrats needed six uh republican seats to switch and certainly rhode island was in the crosshairs uh, as a blue state one of the bluest states in the country but mitch mcconnell supported me uh the republican party rallied around me i had a primary uh from a right winger that never would have a chance in the general election but he raised a ton of money really came after me Uh, i was able to defeat him But spending all that time and energy, and I still was voting my conscience, and I voted against John Bolton a week before the primary, and and we have independents in Rhode Island that can vote in our primary, so that was helpful to me. Independents came in and they liked that vote against John Bolton, uh, and we were were able to put me over the top. But having some of uh, Mitch McConnell and other established Republicans, even Laura Bush, uh, came to Rhode Island on my behalf uh, before the primary, Uh, so. I was able to navigate in the end. I didn't win my reelection, but, uh, I was able to at least navigate having the established party say only link as a Republican can win in Rhode Island. Let's face it. And, and it's not going to be some right winger. So let's get behind him and, and see if we, and I said, I'd stay a Republican if elected. I had to say that because they're helping me. And that was a, that, that probably in the end in the general election was my undoing. So I, I was kind of caught, uh, <laughs> but, uh, I made the decision to stay a Republican, run as a Republican, take their support. I beat the primary opponent, which was one of my proudest of 12 different wins in, in politics. It, it wasn't easy, but I did was able at least to navigate that aspect
0: of it. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up that that race. I, I'm assuming the one against Steve Laffey in those You got it. Yeah, Steve yeah. Laffey. <laughs> that, that was that was something that I, I wanted to, to bring up because It parallels something that I've seen in Wyoming, maybe to a lesser degree, but like Teton County specifically being a a blue-leaning county in a red state. I I know a significant amount of people who anywhere else would identify as a Democrat, fairly solidly, uh, register as a Republican in the primary to then vote for the Republican they ideologically agree with the most because they recognize in Wyoming, especially now, Marav Ben David wasn't going to win in 2016. Gary Trowner wasn't going to win in, um, or Ben David in 2020, Trowner in 2016. But they just know. Uh, and I, I think in Rhode Island, you, you might even have that to an extent in the other direction with, with a state leaning blue. Do you, do you see those parallels there? And what's your immediate response to someone aligning with a party that on net they don't really associate with for the sake of recognizing, okay, pragmatically it's a choice between two people I might disagree with, but I want to vote for the one I disagree with less.
1: Well, I think what you're saying is that the voters are getting more and more sophisticated and fi- figuring out how these parties are working in the primaries and and what you're saying. I think uh, a lot of Democrats helped Gordon get elected. Yeah, right. Do I have that right?
0: That's Governor Mark Gordon that Governor Chafee is referring to in the state of Wyoming, who ironically recently has come under fire within his own party for potentially being a little too liberal or a little too moderate, and there's been pushes to try and even change voting systems to get him out in the next primary in favor of someone more conservative. So that goes to show the dynamics that we have in these states with people potentially switching and being smart, like Chafee says.
1: Yes, yes. So voters again sophisticated. And what you said earlier in the podcast about uh, third party being a spoilers, uh, their understanding. And I had good friends that say, if you ever get the libertarian nomination, don't count on my vote. <laughs> These are my best friends because <laughs> they were some of them were uh, so opposed to Donald Trump that they'd do anything uh, to make sure he didn't stay in office. And uh, so the, the point is, yes, the voters are starting to get very, very sophisticated, which is
0: good. And and that I think that's that's a good perspective to have. The idea that we we have these confines, I think it's fair to say. And and something you mentioned earlier, the two parties are going to make sure to do everything in their power to maintain their spot as the two parties. But doing what you can as a voter to navigate that system, still get your voice heard to the extent you can with those confines. With that in mind. Do you think you'd ever reassociate with either the Democratic or Republican Party uh, if you were to run for office again? Or are you content in in recognizing the role of the Libertarian Party and trying to sort of dig in there and accomplish what you can?
1: Well, I do care about the issues that I talked about. And the Democrats have nominated now Hillary Clinton, a big war supporter in 2016, Joe Biden, a big war supporter in 2020. Uh the Republicans, of course, are all uh, more hawkish even than, than the Democrats. And uh, uh, the deficit, you know, both parties are guilty of the deficit. So I can't, I can't see going back to the parties as long as they're not doing anything about the issues that I care about. I mean, a good foreign policy of non-intervention unless it's absolutely essential that the, the, every drop of American blood that is shed is for a good reason for our national interests, and uh, to, to stop the spending. and. And, and balance the books. It's, it's just, it's, it's not responsible uh, leadership and uh, stewardship of our country, and of course, civil liberties being the other big issue. Uh, so, as as long as, that, and I don't see that happening in any time in the near future uh, on the issues I care about.
0: Well, you know, this this actually raises a good question, um...
1: and I'd just like to interrupt for a second to and uh, what the party did to Bernie Sanders mm. also. Uh, There was this thirst for an outsider and you had Donald Trump, the Republicans were nominating uh, an outsider And, and the Democrats had the choice between an outsider, Senator Sanders, or a total insider in Secretary Clinton. And they just, the party made sure that Bernie could not get traction. He had the big crowds and everything, but in the end at the convention, they barely let him speak and then they gave him a five minute and pushed him out. Uh, Hillary didn't pick him for his vice pre- for vice president, should have done that.
0: Do you think that if the party had gotten behind, or at least not been so set on Clinton with the superdelegates and everything, immediately off the bat in 2016, uh, had Bernie won the nomination, do you think he would have been more competitive against Donald Trump in 2016?
1: I think he would have beaten Trump.
0: Hmm.
1: I do. Uh, he had been a mayor of Burlington. He'd been a congressman. He'd been a senator. Yet he still was an outsider. And having that experience, you can't be a good mayor unless you know how to pick up the trash, plow the streets, uh, educate the children, make sure the public safety is arriving on time when you dial nine one one. That's what mayors do. And he did it. And he became a congressman. He was a good congressman and a senator. That he still was an outsider. I think he would have won. Whereas Donald Trump didn't have any of that government experience doing what. I just talked about plowing the streets and educating the children and all those things that services the government provides. Sanders won Rhode Island overwhelmingly. It was a big shock. I thought Clinton was going to win my home state. And uh, the superdelegates, when they went to the convention, every single superdelegate voted for Clinton. It, so the, the system wasn't working. He won Rhode Island overwhelmingly, Every almost every city and town in Rhode Island. And then all the The establishment, which were the superdelegates, when the role was called at the convention, the Democratic convention, I think it was uh, 20 to 11 in favor of the the person that lost the primary. So that's that's an instance of how the establishment made sure uh, that the outsiders were kept out.
0: Senator Sanders raises a few different questions, honestly, one of which that I, I was going to ask you about anyway was would you agree with the idea that both parties have been shifting outwards towards their respective further left and right especially over these last eight, 10 years uh well
1: certainly uh,
0: what happened with joe
1: biden another t- total insider uh, winning the nomination would not be evidence of that i think elizabeth warren and sanders split the vote uh in in 2020 in the primaries and so it still remains to be seen, uh, the whole AOC phenomenon and, uh, and how that happened, how this is going to play out. Can they win? Uh, they're saying, should she challenge Senator Schumer and, 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 and have a debate on the, the future of the Democrat Party in New York? These things, they could happen, and they're always healthy, uh, in my view. Let the people speak and let the, uh, let the candidates debate the issues.
0: Definitely. And that shift within the Democratic Party specifically is something that really interests me because my peers, uh, I think overwhelmingly the youth are not only more inclined to be liberal historically, but especially now I see my sort of left-leaning peers openly critical of the Democratic Party and President Biden, especially with what happened in, in Syria recently. But uh, the idea that the Democrats are not liberal enough for where the party might be going in the future, do you think that might lead into a fairly significant shift uh, considering what you've seen out of my generation, those who are a few years older and starting to actually have that vote, even though it, it didn't lead to Sanders or or Warren, for that matter, winning the nomination in 2020?
1: Well, uh, President Obama didn't get us, and you mentioned the uh, Syrian as a kind of a cat get what President Biden did in Syria as a kind of catalyst for your generation. President, Biden, uh, President Obama didn't get us too into any deep conflicts, the drone strikes and some of those things that uh, I opposed did occur. And, and Donald Trump for everything, he did not get into us into Venezuela or into Iran or might've gone right up to the edge, but never did. And now we see uh, President Biden starting to to change that. And uh, I, I'm, I do think, President Eisenhower said in 1960 in his farewell speech about the military industrial complex is true. They're so powerful. And, 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 uh, and Biden, he was a big war supporter without the evidence being there that the weapons of mass destruction. I, some of these hawks uh, are just itching And whether it's the profits or, or, or their view of the world and American uh, unilateralism in the world, uh, it, whatever causes them to be so hawkish. Uh, I think it's there, and, and I think it could occur. Uh, you know, different events happen, ISIS comes up, and next thing you know, here we are uh, escalating in the Middle East. And I would not be surprised one bit. I wasn't surprised when I saw that after 32 days or whatever it was. Here we go uh, in Syria. Here we go.
0: So on that note, it seems when, when Democrats are in power and when Republicans are in power, some of the same things happen. Uh, And I've experienced them be villainized by the other party. Who's not currently doing that. uh, And then go on and do just that. Uh, I think spending that you've brought up throughout uh, us speaking is a great example. Uh, The other party says you're spending too much, you're spending too much. And then the the tides flip and spending continues to increase. And then, you know, the Republicans embody that voice and the Democrats do to that note how much uh, of those decisions made are, are about the political theater and, and the idea of, I, I think everyone recognizes that uh, increased spending scares most Americans, regardless of what party you're in. I, I guess to some extent, I, I'm just sort of venting there and want to give you the opportunity to, to really concretely say, like, do you think either party is actually standing up for those ideas or are they being critical of the other party with no intention of actually changing those thoughts just because of how politics works in America and more focused on winning elections as opposed to actually changing those things that talking about them can win you elections, but doing them doesn't get done.
1: Yeah. The Tea Party, uh, all of a sudden they were the the hot thing and, uh, nothing changed. I think you're right. You just, uh, it, it takes tremendous discipline and it was all a call for cut taxes, cut taxes, but that's easy. Any politician can cut taxes, that's fun. The hard part is cutting spending, and it, it seems like that no one had the appetite for the hard work, the hard side of it. Uh, as a mayor and a governor, uh, it, of course I wanted to cut spending, it's hard. If people want their services and where you pick and what you cut, it, it, it takes a skill and a determination. And it doesn't seem like the the politicians have the appetite for that kind of hard work.
0: One of my guesses as to why that happens is the economy being one of the most important roles to oversee is as a a politician, especially if you're in a role like president, governor, even down to mayor trying to navigate all that being sort of the person held responsible for what's going on in your town, state, country. I think many Americans don't understand the intricacies of what goes into running an economy and you say deficit spending and some people might not even know what that means. If you're just outright printing more, if that's being borrowed or a mix or anything else. So do you think that there is a way to inform people about the inner workings of, of what actually happens? Do you think that informing them would lead to any change or, would you share the concern that those sort of buzzwords—economy uh, is doing better, economy is doing worse—we're spending too much, we're spending too little—and and never really getting in, into the meat there? How does that play into our elections, and and can that be fixed? Like, can we do better there?
1: Well, I do trust the the voters, uh, uh, and it, these issues—you just never know what's going to just catch on, get traction, catch fire, whatever you want to call it. Paul Songas was a completely unknown former Senator from Massachusetts the won the New Hampshire presidential primary talking about the economy. In, in the end, he didn't win the nomination, but oh, he came out of nowhere. He hadn't even been in office. Uh, uh, who, who else has come from nowhere? Howard Dean was a uh, insignificant former governor of Vermont. He, he took off for a while talking about anti-war uh, in 2004, I think it was. And um, Sanders, when we first started running for president, we'd go to many events in Iowa and New Hampshire, and I'd look around at Webb and oftentimes Hillary would have a surrogate there. Uh, and I'd hear Senator Sanders pitch against the billionaires. I'm, I did not think that was gonna take take off, but it did. And so you never know what message is gonna resonate with the American people. And, and I just have faith, uh, as we talked about the, the voters are. Uh, sophisticated, they're smart. That uh, they listen, and then when these issues matter most to the to the people, uh, they'll act.
0: That sort of brings me back to the media again, and and how the rhetoric that Senator Sanders was putting out there in 2016, as you mentioned, did trust the voters. The voters already had those concerns, but maybe weren't hearing candidates that resonated with them or uh, the way it was portrayed. But I, I think at that specific debate, even <laughs> circling back to October, 2015, when, when Sanders was given so much screen time in, in order to voice his concerns and, and sort of those slogans that, that made sense, uh, sort of, you know, touching on the billionaires and the, the top 1% and all of that, which are now just t- typical vocabulary in, in politics today, just a few years later, but the media deciding to latch to that was, was that the catalyst for Sanders being the, the one that everyone sort of got behind? And I'll clarify what I'm getting at is, is I, I felt that your stances were, there's definitely significant political differences between yourself and Senator Sanders, but that sort of outside holding the establishment accountable, those ideas, I, I think you can probably resonate there. Had, had you been given the, the 30, 40, 50 minutes, uh, do you think that th- the same thing might have happened? A good question. Good question. You might, I,
1: I sometimes have thought they were more, the establishment was more scared of me. Uh, and that's why they didn't give me any time. I've been a former uh, mayor, senator, governor. There's not too many Americans that have served at all three levels of government. Uh, and, and without a scandal in the debate, I said I haven't had a scandal in 30 years, in, in my 30 years of public service. And the Clinton people booed. <laughs> in the audience there in Las Vegas at the debate. I could hear a murmur of booze when I said, I've never had a scandal. Uh, so may, perhaps uh, they were not, they thought Bernie's never never gonna really uh, attract, but it, it happened. And uh, it kind of, I think they took, took the establishment a little bit by surprise how, how strong he ended up being, but they always had the superdelegates uh, in their pocket. And, and what happened in Rhode Island is a perfect example every single superdelegate voted against the wishes of our state as, as expressed in the primary and went to the convention and and voted with the establishment. So they knew they had that and they could afford to let Bernie uh, do his thing. It got scary for them. uh, But in the end uh, they did the, they made the wrong call and nominated a person that lost.
0: The the primary reforms that the democratic party implemented uh, sort of decreasing the importance of superdelegates in 2020 and and some of those ideas, do you at least see those as as positive changes to come out of the 2016 Sanders campaign, step in the right direction, uh, sort of scaring the Democratic Party into doing something different? And uh, sort of on that note, do you think that that might be a, a way to approach things within the two parties that exist, trying to make a ruckus, even if you don't end up being the candidate, whoever that maybe even, is that a, a valid path to trying to influence some change?
1: Uh, yeah, well, they, 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 the superdelegates didn't count on the first ballot. It was kind of, okay, a little bit, a little bit, yeah. But boy, they come roaring back after that. So I think for critics uh, of reform, for advocates for reform and critics of the status quo uh, would say uh, not enough. Uh, the establishment likes control. Uh, they want to keep it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I think that's what it comes down to for a lot of these answers is control.
1: Well, we're going through volatile times. We're going through interesting times. Uh, you get 2022 coming up. Uh, there's a, what happened in the Capitol, is, and, and the fact that they were allowed the reinforcements never came for six hours, even though there's a lot going on in this country right now and then on the far left the AOC and what they're advocating for these are these are interesting times
0: this this might be the last thing i want to touch on the idea of us being in interesting times right now that's a tough question for me because the last 4 years of high school for me have been my exposure to politics i, I was i was too young when i was 11 and younger frankly so it goes my my normal is President Trump, the 2020 election, the 2016 election, the end of the Obama years—that—that's what I see as U.S. politics. And I often hear, "We're in interesting times," and uh, it, it's sort of phrased as if this—this this isn't typical of—in your years in politics and and everything you've seen, all the way back to. You know, being a mayor, local politics, in I think eighties and nineties, and then Senate and then governor being at, at every stage of the process. Do you, do you really think that this is an especially unique time? Do you think we'll regress back to a normal that you may have seen in years past? Uh, do you think that the trajectory we're on is the trajectory we're going down for the rest of my life? Ah. Uh, I'm an optimist against
1: (laughs) many experiences that I've had, but I'm still an optimist. And I I do have faith in the voter. Yes, the mainstream media are powerful, uh, but as we've talked about earlier, how how sophisticated the voters are getting and and nuanced, and the Trump phenomenon is something very, very different in, in American experiences. But it did occur. It's still there. There is a new president. And we'll just have to see how this plays out. Midterm elections coming up, those are always uh, litmus tests uh, that are important. And uh, the voters express themselves. And as long as we have those freedoms to vote, uh, I I have confidence.
0: I appreciate the optimism. (laughs) I I think it's good to have a dose of that, frankly, because otherwise, what are you going to (laughs) do?
1: That's right. That's right.
0: What are you going to do? There are definite trends in America today, and Governor Chafee did a great job of describing them. And in reality, his career has followed those trends, switching parties, trying to find a niche that he can align with that's now taken him to the Libertarian Party, one unlikely to further his career in politics in the traditional manner, but one in which he can be confident that he's staying steadfast in his beliefs and not sacrificing, not compromising on what he knows he wants to fight for. But when Governor Chafee tells you that the world is polarizing, that partisanship can be healthy, but today isn't, given his experiences, I think we should be inclined to listen. Thank you all for joining me on this episode of Party Pre, and I hope to see you back in the future.